Hello there. This is Rish Outfield. <laughs> and this is another podcast that dares not speak its name. I'm at the family cabin by myself, as always. And uh, I grabbed a book from the library. I, look, let me just come right out and say, I, it was the Orson Scott Card book from last year, the Lost and Found book. I, I grabbed it because I was thinking about writing another story about Will Choner, who was the protagonist in my Lost and Found book. And I was thinking of introducing another character who has a sort of a, a power, not a superpower, but a, yes, a superpower much lamer than Will's ability to find things that are lost. And uh, it was going to jump ahead to when he's a teenager, when he's in high school, and you know him getting the chance to find people for a living. I, maybe he could be a high school graduate. I, I, I don't know. The thing is, and forgive me for going over familiar territory, but a lot of this episode is going to be that. But I was really bummed out when I found out that Orson Scott Card had written a book with the exact same premise as my Lost and Found, with the exact same title. Mortified is probably the word. Maybe not mortified. It upset me, but it didn't destroy my world or anything like that because, you know, that sort of stuff happens a lot. And I had always intended to read the book because I thought if I'm going to continue writing these stories about this character, I want to make sure that I steer clear of anything that Card writes about. Because as I have said, and as he himself said, it doesn't matter if they have the same premise. Because one is my story and one is his story and we're very different people. And so the stories will be different. And I, I, I think that that's great that he has that attitude. Of course, if, you know, I sold the rights to mine or something like that, or somebody wanted to make a movie or a TV series, TV series would be better, uh, about... Will Choner, I'm sure the lawyers would come out of the woodwork and what he said about us writing our own stories being okay would no longer be okay. But I don't know that. Nope. I don't know the man. I, don't know. I shouldn't judge the man too harshly uh, because the, the rest of the world is judging the man harshly right now. And to make a long story short, I found myself really, really frustrated by the book. And the last two or three of his pieces that I've read, his books that I've read, have frustrated me in the same way because he always writes child protagonists that are smarter than the people around them. They're smarter than their parents. They're smarter than their teachers. And they're smart asses. They always have some wiseacre comment to make and they aren't liked because of their bad attitudes and because of their sense of superiority. And I don't want to oversell this, but I also don't want to undersell it. I'm sick of it. And in this book, not only is the main character who is able to magically find things that are lost, one of these smart-ass kids, but he has a friend, a best friend, who is even smarter than he is, 
and the two of them just spend the whole book criticizing and snarking. And when an authority figure says something, they have a better answer. And no bones about it. I'm just, I'm tired of, I'm tired, tired, tired. I'm tired of it. Tired of this shit. Tired, tired. Sorry. Uh, I'm just, I'm sick to death of it. And it made me close the book. I was reading it as the sun was going down. I knew I only had a little bit more light in the back before it was too dark to read. But I didn't care. I closed the book and I came in and I decided to podcast because I started to think about my own writing and I started to wonder if I have the same kind of thing. Do I dare call it a weakness? Because listen, I've no doubt, I've no doubt that Scott Card, when he was growing up, was one of these kids who was smarter than everybody around him and it made him feel like an outcast and he'd always say whatever was on his mind and it didn't earn him any friends because he as an adult is still that way and he'll just say whatever's on his mind. And I've been in a room with him before and he did. And there were times when I thought, huh, if I were an author and, uh, you know, I went to a signing or a public reading, I don't know. I don't know, Margo. Do you have to pretend to be somebody you're not? Or can you just be super frank? And, and the times that I've seen the guy, he will criticize other writers. He will criticize TV shows. And I can't do that. Even though that's, that's what, what I'm doing, doing right, right this, this second. second. Because my fear is somebody would say, oh, okay, so you... You think you're better than Star Trek Discovery? You know, this thing that you wrote was utter crap. And I guess that's the difference between me and him, is that I don't have the loads of confidence that it takes to be a successful writer and who can just stand up to criticism and say, you know, I don't care if you don't like it. I like it and I think that it's good. It is a criticism I'm making of Mr. Card, but it's also something that I admire about him. I wish that I could say the so-and-so story that I just finished is great and you should buy it because it's great and because I worked really hard on it and guess what? It's, it's great. great. You'll never hear me say that. Darn it. And that's, that's probably shot me in the foot multiple times. Anyway, kids... I was thinking about my own writing and I wondered, are there things that I do that are deal breakers for people that meet people close the book or turn off the file? And, you know, there have been a couple of people that have sent me emails or commented on my blog that have expressed that they are uh, rage quitting the show or that they take exception with something that I wrote. Um, it's not usually criticism of my work necessarily. It's usually criticism of me, of something that I have said. And we had that happen. We had hate quitting on the Doonstief from time to time. And cards on the table, it was never Big Anklevich that they took exception with, that I can remember. Of course, if somebody did say something about Big Anklevich and not liking something that he said, I would forget. But you don't forget when it's you. You find when you read... Oh, okay, here, here's something that's interesting. 
So uh, in the summer, the library was closed for COVID-19, and then it reopened, and it had been closed for weeks, and I wished that I had known that it was going to close because I would have run to the library and got a ton of books and videos, so I would have had something to entertain me during that stretch when you weren't supposed to go out and all the movie theaters were closed, and most of the stores were closed. Well, a lot of the stores were closed or restaurants were closed. But when the library reopened, I asked my mom, uh, I'm going to the library. Is there anything that you want me to pick up? And she said, I want you to grab everything by Harlan Coben. And I said, everything? And she said, everything! Okay, that's not true. But I ended up checking out like 22 books or something by him, like so much that I had to make two trips to the car. And as she finished the books, I started taking them back to the library. The library is just right next to the bank. It's right next to a 7-Eleven. And so I, I would go to those places quite often. And um, one of the books that she had checked out was called Six Years. And I looked at the flap, because it was the hardcover, uh, and read the synopsis, and I thought, dang, that sounds really interesting. And essentially, oh gosh, do I spoil the book or not? I have to spoil the book to make the point that I'm trying to make. Damn, I have to spoil it, I'm sorry. So I checked it back in and then checked it out from again myself, so that I could read it. It was the first Harlan Coben book that I ever read. And it's from like 2017, let's say. So it was very, very recent. And, and the premise is this. There's a college professor. He, six years ago, fell in love with this wonderful girl named Natalie, super beautiful and artistic. And she made him come to life. And she fell in love with him. And then out of the blue, she told him, I'm sorry, I can't see you anymore. I'm marrying an old boyfriend of mine. We rekindled our romance and I'm marrying him. I'm sorry, here's a wedding invitation. And the main character goes to the wedding and sees this guy and Natalie and they are in love and they get married and his heart is broken. And then you cut, and then he never hears from her again. And then six years later, he's, He's teaching college. He has not been able to move on. Uh, he's dated a couple of times, and they can always tell there's something wrong with him. He's not able to commit. And he sees an obituary notice, and it's this man that Natalie married six years ago. And he decides to go to the funeral just to see her again, frankly. I mean, you can say, for closure you know, hoping to hit on the bride uh, just because he needs to see her again, I guess, because he, he never stopped loving her. It's depicted in a very positive way. And then other people do question him later in the book of like, what? You went to this funeral, et cetera, et cetera. The same reason that he went to the wedding. Anyway, he, he goes to this funeral and the wife, the grieving widow, is not Natalie. It's somebody he's never seen before. Anyway, most of this is what was on the flap. And I thought, wow, that's fascinating. He discovers through the course of the book 
And here, just skip ahead a minute if you think that you will read this book and you don't want the ending spoiled. But he discovers that Natalie didn't actually marry this guy, that something happened and she went into hiding. And it was a very contrived conspiracy. Several pieces had to fall into place for this to work in this way. And ultimately, at the end, he finds out that she was witness to a murder and had to go into hiding in a way. And there was an organization that hides people that the mob wants dead. The reason I'm boring you with this is that that was the first Harlan Coben book that I ever read, and I thought that it was great. It had personality. It had humor. It moved along at a very fast pace. It had a protagonist that I felt was very believable and likable. He was in love with some girl named Natalie who he couldn't get over and he couldn't be with. It was just really interesting reading. And so I thought, well, I'll pick up another book. And at random, this was just last month, I went to the library and I grabbed a book called Tell No One from 2001. And uh, I read it. And the premise of Tell No One is that there's a man and he married his childhood sweetheart and they were in love and she was great and they were in love and then she is murdered by a serial killer. And eight years pass and our, our protagonist, uh, who is a doctor and works with underprivileged kids, he just, he can't get over it. He can't. He, he can't get any closure. It's been eight years, but he's never been able to find someone. And it just, it died. he lost his soulmate. And after eight years, somebody sends him an email. And it's from his dead wife. Or it seems to be. And he discovers that his dead wife is not dead. That she's alive out there somewhere. Or there's somebody making him believe that his dead wife is alive again. But to what end? And skip ahead one minute if you want to read Tell No One. Oh, uh, the email that is sent to him ends with Tell No One. And that's where the title comes from. But in the end, it turns out that his wife was not killed by a serial killer, that she is alive, and that she was the witness to a murder, and they faked her death so that she could escape the mob that wanted her dead because of what, it, what she had seen here. And, I, and I, I'm generalizing a little bit because the two books aren't the same, except for they're the only two Harlan Coben books I've ever read, and it's just... A crazy coincidence if the guy has read has written 25 books and only two of them have this very close premise. And they're the only two that I happened to have read. It's just, what are the chances? It made my head spin that every time there was something where I was just like, oh my gosh, this was in six years, something like this. Of course, they do diverge quite a bit. Their tone is very divergent. But they both have this mob, like New York Mafia, powerful, organized crime uh, coming after him, the boyfriend in the first book and the husband in the second book, because 
they think that he can lead them to her. There's also a really neat twist in the second book, in Tell No One, where the FBI starts to believe that he killed his wife and that they pinned it on this serial killer who was caught and was in all the papers and brought to justice. And I liked that. I thought that that was really a nice twist because it it sucked. We knew how much this guy loved his wife and for the authorities to be like, nope, he murdered her. That was really cool. But still, it just, it made me think about my own writing and maybe the sameness of it. And it reminded me, and I, I throw Big under the bus quite a bit for saying this. I hope he'll forgive me, but, you know, he used the one that said it. He said that you can always tell that it's a story that you wrote, Rish, because the main character is a big loser. And just like me saying Orson Scott Card probably had this childhood that he recaptures in every one of his books, I am a big loser and don't write about the winners of the world. I write about people who are unsure of themselves, people who are failures, people who are nerds or geeks or bullied or not sure of themselves, underdogs. And it's possible that that turns people off. I, I, I listened to a writer, a big shot writer uh, who wrote for Friends that was on his own trying to get his own shows picked up by the networks. And every time he would write one of these pilots, they wouldn't pick it up because they saw the protagonists as losers, as poor, they struggle with money, they can't keep a job, they, you know, they don't have it all. And this writer, despite having written for friends, that's how he saw himself. That's how his life had been. But these executives, network executives that kept passing on it, they have limos that take them to and from work. They have their meals at five-star restaurants. They don't have to worry about money. They don't have to worry about anybody not wanting to date them or hire them. They can't relate to an average person, to an everyman. They see them as losers. And when he, when he was saying this in the in interview, I was just like, wow, I never thought about that. But yeah, okay. It made me think about my own writing. And yes, most of my protagonists are that way. And it's because that's who I am. I write a lot of child protagonists. And when I do, they're never smarter than the rest of the people in the room. They're always lost or ignorant or in over their heads. They have wide-eyed innocence and they don't understand the joke or they don't know the word or they, they've never experienced whatever the sexual reference is being made by the other kids. And that was me. I never felt like the, the guy that had all the answers, the guy who would outsmart the teacher or the cop or the parent. And that's just my experience. It doesn't mean that it's a universal experience, but that's what it is. And I thought about that when I closed the book and, and, and grabbed this recorder, and I remembered 
that last year, at the very end of last year, I was going to do an episode of the podcast where I talked about things that I have discovered in my own writing that I do too much. And I never did the episode because why would you? A list of like 20 words that I overuse in my own writing? Do I want to point that out for people to criticize later and say, yeah, he does say Shanugana a lot. What the cack? So I never did. I never did the episode. But here we are now after reading the Orson Scott Card thing. And I'm thinking, well, maybe I should go down that list and just make it, make it part of this episode. Because I've already talked for 20 minutes about the card thing. I remember somebody criticizing J.K. Rowling during the Harry Potter years with how many adverbs she used in those books and said, you know, these are five, six hundred page books, but they'd only be four or five hundred page books if she took out all the adverbs. And I was just like, what is an adverb again? But then once I'd heard somebody mention it, I couldn't unsee it. And it particularly, you've heard me complain about this before, the word darkly. I had never heard the word darkly before until I discovered it in the Harry Potter books and I didn't know what it meant. And she's really got to get her priorities straight, Ron said darkly. It, the, 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 the writing itself didn't make darkly clear to me. And listen, if you knew what darkly meant and it didn't bother you that she used it a hundred times each book, then you're better than me, then you're smarter than me, then maybe you should pick up these Orson Scott Card books and you can read them and say, yep, that's what I was like. But the Darkly thing really, really bothered me to the point where uh, I wrote a book recently and I had it set in Darkly, Colorado. It's just like a little jab. Only Big Anklevich would pick up on that. And he didn't read the book, so nobody picked up on that. But that's okay. You read the book. Maybe you'll like it. Maybe you'll think it was good, despite a loser protagonist, right? So what I'm going to do is I'm going to look at this list of words that I use too much in my writing. And then I'll, I'll, I'll give you a little example on each one, and uh, then I'll let you go your way. It doesn't have to be a long episode, does it? Of course it does. Damn you! One. Suddenly. Suddenly, life has no meaning to me. Oh, let me do that as Adam Sandler. Suddenly, life has no meaning to me. This is, this is number one for a reason. Oh, oh, sorry, I have to use an exact example. Logan suddenly knew. Oh, I like that. But we'll have Fake Sean do each one of those. Hey, fake Sean. Yes? Usually you participate in these episodes. Would you like to participate in this one? Hell no. Okay. Could you please participate in this one? What do you want me to do? Okay, so in each one of these words that I overuse, I'll use in a sentence, but I'll have you read the sentence, okay? Are you trying to trick me, boy? Trick me into saying something about Creative Commons licenses? No, that will come later. 
Ah, all right. Fire away. Fire away, fire away. And bulletproof. All right, sorry, sorry. No Adam Sandler impressions. Not ever. N not in this episode, not in any future episodes. Sorry. Logan, Logan suddenly knew where the knife would be. So, so this is number one for a reason. When I was in eighth grade, I was in an English class, and Miss Moon, Mrs. Moon, Mrs. Moon was my teacher, and it was about this time when I started to really enjoy the writing. Discovered that I had a, a knack or an aptitude for writing. I, I enjoyed writing. And it carried on. It was a bigger deal in ninth grade, 10th grade, 11th grade, of course, you know, 12th grade, 13th grade. <clears throat> Sorry. But I wrote a, a lot of stuff in Mrs. Moon's class, and she circled the word suddenly, and I had used it three times in like a two-page story or one-page story, and she said with, you know, her red pen, you want to limit how many times you use the word suddenly. Otherwise, it loses its power. And, and later she said the same thing with the C word, but that's not on my list. Wait, is it? I think it might be. Okay, it's not. So uh, after that, since the eighth grade, I have always tried to limit my use of suddenly. It is a thing that I am aware of. Um, and so I put it number one. Number two, immediately, comma, instantly. Marshall instantly dropped to one knee. Okay, so you know why immediately and instantly are there, right? Because I swap out immediately for suddenly. So those two are words that mean the exact same thing. And so, you know, I, I, I switch them out, but I still use them too much because that little boy in that class that used suddenly three times on one page, he still exists. And he wants to use suddenly or immediately or instantly or all of a sudden or in an instant or just then. And I think the fact that you can switch them up and randomize them makes them not so bad. If they all said suddenly, then it would be worse. Number three, nodded. Mark nodded. I couldn't agree more. I don't know why I use nodded so much, but I do. A lot. It's something that I use to designate who is about to give the dialogue. It doesn't necessarily mean that they agree. It doesn't, it doesn't mean anything. It's just there. And I think I do it too much. I, I talked to uh, somebody. Yes, it was Abigail Hilton who said that when you use Laura said, you can use it over and 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 over, and the reader never gets tired of it. 
never get sick of Laura Seds because it's unconscious to the reader. The reader doesn't process those. It's like seeing quotation marks or something. It's subconscious. You need the Laura said because it's a designator. It tells you who is speaking. But it's okay that it's repetitive because it's necessary. Anyway, that's, that's what I'm, I'm paraphrasing what Abby said. And, um, but I, I took it to heart. And I still switch it up sometimes and change Laura said to said Laura. Laura asked. Laura wondered. Um, but I, I know that there are writers who say said is the only one, the only verb that you are allowed to use because Laura questioned, Laura mumbled, Laura shrieked, Laura yelled, Laura, here's the best one, ejaculated. People say that those do call attention to themselves, whereas said does not. And I guess I agree with them, but not if they say that asked is something that brings attention to itself. Asked is the same as said, but it's just applicable when you've got a question mark. You have to say asked or it's weird. And that's just my opinion. Your mileage may vary. Number four, shook his head. I think you could see that coming because number three was nodded. Sean, like Sean, Tom shook his head. I don't think you're really listening to me, and it's going to cost you in the end. Well, that, that was really good. It's exactly the same thing. So-and-so shook his head. Uh, it's just me letting the reader know who is about to speak. And I, I probably do shook his head more than I do nodded, because shook his head means you disagree, but it also means you don't like what's happening. It also means you're afraid or upset, you're disappointed, you're tired. Nodded usually is a positive, you know, an affirmation, but shook his head can mean a bunch of stuff, and I use it too much because it can mean a bunch of stuff. Number five, shrugged. <laughs> Vinch shrugged. He could always get another pillowcase. Huh. Shrugged is one of those also. It's right there. Nodded, shook his head, shrugged. It's, it's sort of a hollow action. Something that I use again and again and will continue to always use. It, it designates, I don't know, but it can also designate, I don't care. It can designate, I'm giving up. It can designate, I'm tired. It can designate, I'm not really listening. It can designate, I don't like you. It's useful, shrugged. But because it's useful, I use it too much. Do you understand? Number six. Well, comma. Well, Abby had beaten me once again. Well, that was never going to happen now. Well, you did two of them. Thank you. Well is something that I use a lot. And recently uh, we produced, I produced a sketch over on Delusions of Grandeur that was called uh, Tell Me Once Again Who's Bad 
it was about two children questioning their father about his new line of work. And I must have had 12 or 13 wells, sentences starting with well, comma, in there. And I cut a bunch of them out and there were still like seven or eight when I was editing it together. And I just thought, wow, how did I not notice this? So many wells. It reminds me of when in the 80s when people would do imitations of Ronald Reagan. Well, Nancy and I, you know, it was always well. And maybe it's because Reagan did do it a few times. And people pick up on that and you do stuff so that people will know. I mean, all you had to do was go, well, and people knew it was Reagan. But I, I did it way too much in that sketch and I, I probably just do it too much in real life. In my blog, there's usually a well, comma, in every single post. Okay, number seven, sick, in place of cool, or neato, or swell. Well, that cowboy hat looked totally sick on Dave. Actually, I would never use this slang. Only idiots use it. I don't know how it ended up on this list. It, listen, if you ever hear me use the term, get a pitchfork, for I have been body snatched. Actually, it's more likely I would use neato or swell in some context, but sick, never. Shudder, geez. Wait, did I actually say shudder? Because it's a podcast, I guess. Sorry, uh, number eight. Smiled. Nicholish smiled. Oh, that isn't a carrot, my dear. <laughs> it's what we pay you for, isn't it? Uh, look, I have a character smile in pretty much everything I write. A smile designates who's about to speak, but it also indicates that somebody is pleased, Somebody is happy, somebody is glad, somebody is hopeful, somebody is in a good mood, somebody is positive, somebody is amused, somebody is enjoying themselves, somebody has an epiphany, somebody appreciates something, etc., etc. You know what a smile means. I use it too much, though. It's just something that I like to use. And guess what number nine is? That's right. Frowned. Vinch frowned. His car wasn't where he'd parked it. But lo and behold, there was some broken glass in the empty spot where it had stood. You know, it's the same as smiled. I think they're supremely useful, these two words, but I do them every single time I write. Frowned tells you who's speaking, but it also tells you their attitude and maybe helps paint how the dialogue should be delivered. I don't know. I, I, I think no. whoever criticized the adverbs would also would say, well, then your dialogue, your dialogue needs to be more specific so that there's no way to misinterpret how something is said. I, I, I don't know that I agree with that, but I understand the point. Number 10, little for size and for a small amount. Tina picked up a little golf club and swung it casually around. 
I like the way he says around. Tina had a little cash left, but didn't want to spend it on dinosaur bones. I just, I like the way that little sounds. And I will say, you know, he was a little scared. He had a little fear as he approached the door. He, he was more than a little tempted to turn around and flee. There's so many words that are synonyms for little that sometimes I'll have to swap them out. You know, small, tiny, uh, wee, <laughs> sorry, a bit, you know, a tad, a smidge. I, I, often I will just replace little with one of those other words because little is my go-to. And I'll bet there's 10 littles in every single story I've ever written. Um, number 11, racial slurs. Isn't that just like a womp to bring a knife to a gunfight? Huh. Yeah, I, I do use those a lot, don't I? Sorry. Uh, number 12, swallowed, blinked, froze. That's actually three right there, but I'm combining them all into the same. Andy swallowed. Did I hear you right? He asked. Andy blinked. I don't own any panties, he said. Andy froze. Someone else was breathing there in the dark. These are all useful for me to say that someone is scared, someone is startled, someone has a foreboding. Almost everything that I write is horror or has horror elements in it. And I just love to say that somebody swallowed, that somebody froze, that somebody blinked. I probably use blinked more than the others, but I shouldn't. I just, anytime somebody is surprised, anytime somebody does not expect to see who they saw or to hear what they heard or doesn't have an answer to what has just been asked, they blink. And I, I guess I'm apologizing for it, but it's super useful to me. It's just, I like it. I like starting a sentence. So-and-so blinked. Number 13. Pretty. Beast Vigilante was pretty successful in the journalism business, despite his lack of schooling. Or, Beast Vigilante was pretty, and she knew it. No, 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 I, I, it's not the second one. Pretty as in attractive, I don't feel like I have a problem with. But pretty as in, you know, it's very similar to Little. He was pretty tired, had a pretty good idea of what was coming. It was pretty beat up. It's like saying somewhat, or like saying very, or like saying a little bit. It's, it's just something that I say more than very, more than slightly, more than somewhat. I always say pretty. I like the word pretty. Uh, I have a friend who uses the word kinda all the time. Not in his writing, but he uses it in real life, kinda. He says, I kinda liked that movie. And I was like, oh, really, you only kinda liked it. And he's like, no, 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 I, I loved it. And I thought, well, why did he use kinda then? 
because kind of means somewhat or a little bit or, uh, you know, but it's just something that he does. That he's, you know, it's, it's everybody has their thing and pretty is mine. Uh, number 14, growled, muttered, mumbled, grumbled. Oh, no. Fake Sean, don't do it. When did you get here? Cherie growled. About ten minutes after you passed out, Cherie mumbled. Oh, don't remind me, Cherie grumbled. Look, it doesn't bother me that I use these, but I use them a lot. A better writer than me would say, just use said. Okay, so, so here in my notes, I actually have what Abby said. Said is as useful as the or an and is just as invisible. So, yeah, I've already gone over this, this point, but I still try and switch things up in everything that I write. And if that makes me a hack, then, well, a hack I be, I suppose. Uh, number 15, suck. It would total. oh, sorry, fake Sean. It would totally suck to be Vinch right now, Scott mused. Ricky shook his head. Vinch doesn't know that, so maybe that means you suck. Wow, you used a bunch of those in there. You used mused, you used shook his head. Interesting. And then suck. Suck was a profanity when I was a child. I remember the first time that I heard somebody use it was in The Karate Kid in 1984. He was saying, this sucks. And by the time I was in like junior high, it got used so often that I started to dare to use it at home. My mom had, you know, a very specific list of words that, you know, are not acceptable. And that was on the list. Fart was on the list. Piss was on the still is still on the list. But suck, yeah. Every kid uses suck a million times, even when they're like four years old or whatever, and nobody takes them to task for it. I like the word, but I recognize that I probably use it too much because it is a it's a pseudo-profanity, but it doesn't have the same stigma as like darn or heck, or something like that. Maybe I'm wrong. You, you, again, your mileage may vary. And, and if you're a parent, maybe suck is one of those words that you don't allow your kids to use. In which case, I get it, and you may disagree on that. But it's just, it's a word that I like, and I use it too much. Uh, there are words that I used as a teenager that you don't use anymore. It's mostly just because I find that there are words that are offensive to people that hurt their feelings or whatever. And, and so I have worked them out of my vocabulary. But suck, sorry, it just doesn't, I don't feel that way about it. I, I, I will continue to use it. Uh, number 16, blank didn't know. Krish didn't know if the gun would still fire after being submerged. If not... He'd use it as a club. Now listen, I use this phrase, blank didn't know, in everything I write. I have even boasted about it in my Ben Park stories. 
because Benny is the opposite of the usual precocious child character in a book. Oh my gosh, this is from my notes. Because Benny is the opposite of the usual precocious child character in a book, who is smarter than everyone around them, especially adults. Ben is dumb. I am dumb. And unfortunately, I use this too much. I, I will try to curtail it in the future, but I don't know if I'll succeed. Now, was that intentionally there? I don't know. Um, I say I don't know so much that last year I started putting in a drop, an audio drop in my podcasts when I would use I don't know. But I use it so much that I can't put a drop in every time I use it because the joke would wear thin after five, six, seven, eight. Schlemiel, Schlemazel, Haas and Pfeffer Incorporated. We're gonna do it. Should I have Sandler do it? We must have any rule, we'll break it. We are going to make our dreams come. I, I just, I say I don't know so much. And in my writing, the characters are defined more by what they don't know than by what they do. Because my characters are in the dark. My characters are in over their heads. My characters are confused. My characters are worried. I, every once in a while, I will write a confident character and I will write somebody who bangs all the ladies, somebody who fires a gun and they never miss, somebody who will never be fired from a job, would never get nervous around someone. But those are usually a side character. Those are usually the best friend character. Or they have a best friend who is me, who is timid, who is worried, who is not sure of themselves, who wishes that they could be like this character. If I could be like that, oh, I would give anything just to live one day in his shoes. Does anybody else remember that song? That was a really solid, solid song. But can't think of the last time I heard it. Probably today. Rish didn't know. Number 17. A big could have predicted this one. Number 17. No answer. Dana, is that you? Cameron asked, trembling. No answer. Again, a lot of what I write is horror, and I love no answer. Uh, I just, I, those two words speak volumes to me. Who's there? No answer. I, I, of course I could write, there was no response. Only silence greeted Dana. But there was nobody else in the room, etc., etc. I just like the efficient poetry of no answer. And, I, you know, I, I, I use it too much, but I'm going to continue to use it too much because I love it. Sorry. Maybe if I sent my stories to you, to a listener, to be my editor, you would get your red pen out and circle the no answers in the same way that Mrs. Moon circled the suddenlies and send it back to me and I would have to rephrase all of those. And, and, and I'm okay with that, but I just like no answer. And I understand 
that some of these things are crutches and if you use them sparingly, maybe there's, they're not bad. But if you use them too much, you become an addict I must get back in touch. You can do it. It's all up to you. Okay. Uh, this is a musical episode. Have you noticed? Number 18. However. Oh, really? No, no, this one isn't me. Weird. You know who you are. Number 19. Boy slash old man. Galen Ash, the boy if he'd seen anything unusual up on the hill. Not that I can remember, he told the old man. So if it's a young person or a child, I'll say the boy instead of the character's name. If it's an elderly person, I say the old man instead of their name. I always do it. And I will continue to do it forever. This is one where I could be wrong. Abigail Hilton, sound effect, told me that when I would refer to Lara as the girl in the very first Lara and the Witch story, Like a Good Neighbor, uh, it presented a distance between the, the reader and the text. Lara was a term of familiarity. Lara was somebody that they know. The girl is a stranger. The girl is vague. It's not a specific person. It is the girl. So every time Mrs. Holcomb looked at the girl, she felt like you are pushing your readers away, your audience away. You are distancing your audience. And she didn't say it about the boy in the Ben Parks stories, but I'm sure it's applicable if the girl conveyed that. But I just can't help myself. I, I, I love to say the old man. I love to say the boy. It's just going to be, like I said, forever. It's one of my idiosyncrasies, or I don't even know if it's an idiosyncrasy. It's just something that I do. When I'm writing the Lara and the Witch books, and I'm writing one now. I'm actually pretty close to the end. By the time this comes out, it'll be done, unless I suck, to use one of the words I use too much. Rish didn't know if he sucked or not. He blinked. But in that, Old Widow Holcomb is sometimes referred to as Holcomb, sometimes referred to as the old woman, and sometimes referred to as the witch. And I, I switch it up over and over and over again. I rotate those three. The witch looked at Lara. Lara didn't know what the old woman was talking about. Holcomb was standing in the doorway. And it's a characteristic of my writing that I'm never going to get over because I'm middle-aged now. And it's just something that I do and something that I enjoy. And when I'm doing the audio for these, sometimes I'll notice that it's Holcomb, 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 and I'll switch out that middle Holcomb for the old woman or for the witch. It used to be, there used to be a fourth one. Uh, Laura would refer to her neighbor, said her neighbor. 
But once Lara and Holcomb lived together, then you don't get the neighbor one anymore. It's just something that I do. It may be Mrs. Moon's fault with the suddenly and leading me to believe, oh, there are certain things that I say too much. I need to uh, avoid them. Sorry. And Lara and the girl go back and forth. Uh, that's how they go. Uh, it brings us to number 20. Chuge. C-H-U-G-E. God, I hate that I keep using this word. Oh, fake Sean? John Hyam chooged once again. Gino couldn't chooge anymore. Not since the operation. Wait, I... I the religious have trouble chooging. Wait, fake Sean. The vehicle was chooged in the parking Fake Sean. Yes? Chooge isn't a word. I think this might be a typo. Ah. What a disappointing way to end this list. Uh, you crystallized my thoughts eloquently there, fake Sean. Yeah, sorry. Wow, that, that, that brings us to the end. In your own writing, maybe you, some of these things apply to you. Maybe none of them apply to you. Maybe you're not where I am as a writer. Which can be taken in one of two ways. Maybe I'm saying that you don't write nearly as much as I do, so you don't have a body of work as big, and so you can't look at it in this same way. That's possible. But also, you may be you know, a far more successful writer, a far better writer. There's a guy on Facebook who's one of my Facebook friends, and he's one of those people that posts every single day, and he is a real writer. I, I, I always feel like, okay, this is, this, is, this is a guy just like me. He's on my level. But then he will mention something about something that he published or some, a magazine that he wrote for, and there will be comments from real recognizable writers on that saying, oh, yeah, one of my stories was in that. Or, oh, I, I remember the very first time that uh, the New Yorker published one of mine, and I'm reminded, oh, my gosh, this is a real writer. This is not me at all. Why is he my Facebook friend? But I appreciate that he is. You may not have these problems with your writing, but it's useful for you to look at them and say, huh, chooge. <laughs> okay, not chooge. All of the others you can look at and say, well, well, you know, perhaps I'll, I'll, fake Sean was talking there. Perhaps I'll keep this in mind the next time I'm writing, you know, avoid this thing or see if maybe I do that too much as well. More likely, you will pick up on it the next time I share a story of mine. You'll be like, oh, there he is, saying, so-and-so blinked, so-and-so froze, so-and-so grumbled, so-and-so nodded, so-and-so sucked. I hope that that doesn't make you not enjoy what I write. I struggle with feelings of inadequacy and worries that my stuff is not good enough, that I am not good enough. My life has shown that I probably am not, but I really, really do work hard on my writing. I really want it to be good. I put my heart into it, my soul into it, and so I hope that there are people out there that respond to it, that really like it. And, and if that's the case, thank you. Thank you for listening. 
to another one of these episodes. I'll usually go like a year or so in between having one of these podcasts that dare not speak their names, but I've done two in two weeks, so weird. You can always support me over on Patreon. I would really appreciate that, and I need it. It helps me put out more stuff. Sometimes I'm lazy. Sometimes it just doesn't feel worth it. But you can support me there. You can support me with saying nice things. You can email me. You can comment on my blog. You can comment over on Facebook. You can also just continue to listen. I appreciate that if anybody is still there. And fake Sean? Yes. I appreciate you. This has been Rish Outfield. Chew John. Yes, yes. The show you have just listened to is produced under what's known as a Creative Commons 3.0 license, in which you are free to download and share the files as you like, but you cannot change them, take credit for them, or attempt to sell them. I wouldn't take credit for them either. Good night. And to make a long story short, I was reading the book and... Wow, that was a scary sound. I'm gonna find out what caused that. Oh, okay. Somebody hit a bump on the road out there. Wow, noisy. They're smarter than their parents. They're smarter than their teachers. They're smarter than... <laughs> See, now that's hilarious. I went on the back of the cabin out on the back deck. Hi, there's a deer right there. It sees me. I hope it's not freaked out. Oh, there's multiple deer right there. Cool. Uh, I went out on the back deck and that super noisy truck that was in front of the cabin is now behind the cabin because there's a winding road. Oh, it's taking pictures inside my pocket. Great. So uh, another thing I will cut out. Let me say it a third time. <laughs>